people use this language of hard work and they talk about a vocation. I, I think especially academics do this. But like, in fact, most people are too cynical. Like imagine talking to like a hedge fund manager and being like, do you feel like this is a calling? Like, I think- <laughs> Philosophy. I'm Gil. Here with me today is Owen. Hey. Lillian. Hey. And eventually Will. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, on today's episode, we are discussing Max Weber's important book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Weber is considered one of the founding figures of modern sociology and social science more generally, along with Emile Durkheim and Karl Marx. And this book, from 1905, is one of the discipline's foundational documents. The book is significant then as a historical text, but it also develops some interesting ideas about the origins of capitalism and the nature of modern capitalist society. He thinks that the Protestant Reformation encouraged a certain kind of mindset and attitude that made its followers willing and able laborers for the capitalist regime that was starting to coalesce in the Europe of the 16th and 17th centuries. I'd want to be clear at the outset that he's quite dismissive of Marxism and that in several places he presents his own approach as an alternative to historical materialism, which he understands as being naive and reductive. Of course, I would argue, and I think all of us are in agreement on this, that Weber's understanding and presentation of historical materialism is rather unfair and distortive. But he at least sees himself as methodologically opposed to historical materialism on two different fronts. First of all, when he talks about historical materialism, he basically means economistic reduction or economic determinism. The notion that ideas, cultural formations, religions, and so on are merely superstructural phenomena determined one directionally by the economic base. By contrast, he positions his aim in this book as an attempt to show, quote, how ideas can become effective in history. In other words, he sees himself as opposing historical materialism insofar as he thinks that ideas do play a role in shaping historical processes. Now, again, I'm pretty sure that we all agree that Marxists and historical materialists don't deny that ideas have historical efficacy. Even in the vulgar versions of orthodox Marxism that come closest to this, it's still pretty wild to suggest that historical materialism means thinking that only bodies matter and ideas aren't worthy of consideration. But I'll leave that there for now. The second way Weber departs from what he understands by historical materialism is in terms of what he calls his methodological individualism. Here I think the contrast is actually legitimate, insofar as Marxian analyses genuinely tend to have a different methodology than this. Weber's methodological individualism means that social phenomena and historical processes must be framed and understood as resulting from the actions of individuals, and that individual actions must in turn be understood and explained on the basis of those individuals' psychological states. 
This, I think, is indeed quite different from a Marxian perspective that seeks to identify historical tendencies in terms of the struggles between classes. A Marxist might also think that if we can explain, for instance, certain features of a social formation as resulting from the imminent dynamics of capital accumulation or market competition, then we wouldn't really be adding much of value, if anything, to the explanation by considering the individual psychologies of the people involved. So at least in part, I think there's room here for us to have some discussion about methodology in developing adequate understanding in the social sciences and to talk about the differences between a Marxist approach and a Weberian one. With all that said, what does he actually claim in the book? In some ways, I think he's onto something really right and genuinely interesting. If it's a study aiming to show how ideas can become effective in history, the ideas that he wants to make this argument about are a set of religious ideas that get developed in early Protestantism, most explicitly and rigorously in Calvinism. Specifically, he suggests that in Protestantism, Christianity becomes this worldly. It develops a kind of worldview and an attitude that directly valorizes the work of this world and enjoins people to take seriously their job, their secular vocation, here and now, as a kind of calling. The idea of a calling is extremely important here. Originally in Luther, then later in Calvin, it's the notion that God has a job for us to do here in this life, whatever it may be, to which we must tirelessly devote ourselves. We can meaningfully contrast this with other more monastic visions of Christianity, in which this finite material world is utterly worthless in contrast with God's spiritual infinity, so that salvation consists in turning away from the world and all its affairs. Instead, one should devote oneself to one's this-worldly calling with ceaseless effort and rigorous ascetic discipline. Protestantism does not produce monks, it produces workers. And this originally religious line of thinking fits very neatly with the psychological demands of capitalism, which needs us to relate to our jobs as intrinsically valuable, to stay on that grind no matter what, not for the sake of the enjoyment that our wages might later procure for us, but because working hard is the sign of a virtuous character, a possible sign of our grace. I think Weber is at his best in moments like this, where he highlights what he calls the elective affinities between this Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. I think there's a lot that's right there. Certainly here in the US today, a ton of modern Protestantism is totally bound up with the tireless work ethos of capitalist culture. And plenty of our CEOs performatively wear basic plain clothes and drive ordinary cars to showcase that their utter commitment to the job is a matter of virtuous ascetic discipline, not hedonistic pleasure. But here's where Weber also feels a bit slippery or elusive to me. He's clear that he's not making a directly causative claim. It's not like first Luther and Calvin work out some ideas about a calling and then boom, next thing you know, we got capitalism. Certainly, the theologians weren't trying to pave the way for capitalist social formations. Instead, he's making a fuzzier sort of claim about how certain religious ideas slowly became detached from their original theological grounding and created a certain kind of generalized attitude or worldview or ethos, which just so happened to vibe with the needs of a nascent capitalist regime looking for a docile population to exploit. 
And because it's fuzzier, that sort of claim is much harder, I think, to properly assess, even though, as I said, a lot of it does sort of feel right. So I could go on and on forever, especially about the details of the theology, which I've barely touched on here and which I find endlessly fascinating, but I think I should stop. So I'm going to leave off now and open it up to you all. So, you know, what did you guys think about this strange and provocative text? I'm going to let Owen start because I also find it strange and provocative. So let me let me work work my way up. Yeah, it, yeah. it is strange because, you know, at, early on in the in the book, he's, you know, he makes these kind of polemical claims about materialism and materialistic explanation and how it's reductive and, you know, the usual you know, economics can't explain everything, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it makes it sound like he's going to, and which I, a moment which I kind of liked where he's like, I'm going to do an idealist like history. And I like when mm -hmm. people are honest about what they're going to do, you know, and um, rather than having to like, you know, detect the covert idealism, which is I feel like what <laughs> Marxists end up having to do a lot of the times. Right. Um, so it seemed like he was going to propose a kind of alternative idealist causal explanation for how capitalism came about and how the culture and social formation around it came about. But then in, like later in different places, he says, I'm not really, like he tries to humble his, his ambition, basically say, yeah. no, I'm not really, you know, this is just one story of like one part of, and who knows, it may not even be causal uh, of one part of how capitalism came about. It has some connection that I can't, I'm not even going to call it causal, some right. connection to Calvin and Luther and the transformation of Christianity. And like you said, you know, the movement towards worldly asceticism rather than like a transcendent facing asceticism mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I found that really strange. Like, is it, is this, is it meant to undermine materialist explanation? I, or, or I don't know, or is it just meant to add something? I, I'm confused by that. So maybe, yeah, I'll just articulate some confusion and leave it at that. So I, I, I think that we, I try, we're trying to start out generous in a, in a podcast like this, and I'm just going to like break with a uh, past president. I just think he's a terrible theorist. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that I think the reason well, I, I don't disagree for the I record, think yeah. the reason that like it these questions are so obvious is because he doesn't know. Like he says so many contradictory things. He's like I'm going to say that I'm just going to develop one aspect to it. Um and he was like I'm going to have to do a study of different points of view, but other features would be these could be the essential ones <laughs> as they are for any historical yeah. phenomena. Yeah. So I'm not describing I'm something essential, which should mean that I'm actually not describing a precondition for capitalist development, even though I kind of want to say counterfactually that it might not have happened if these ideas <laughs> yeah. weren't there. And so like this, these ambivalences of like what you are doing and I'll try to like turn in a more generous direction at some point, but like, what really drives me nuts about Weber and like why I told you guys in our group chat that I like just low key really hate him is that <laughs> I think he encourages like fake <laughs> nuance and like fake sophistication because if you don't ever have to like really clarify oh, I can see that. your method or the actual nature of the causal claim that you're making. Like, what kind of claim are you making? Are you making a functionalist claim? Are you making a methodological individualist claim? Like, what's going on here? If you refuse to, like, be pinned down, it just seems like you're so complex and nuanced. And then people can be like, oh, it's not just that. It's also this and ooh, but, like, it's not the essential characteristic. There could be other factors, too. He doesn't say that. He's being very careful. It's not careful. It's just like, I don't want to be told I'm wrong. That's kind of my problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, try to, I'll try to like, temp, I like that temp, read. temper my attitude. 
now. Yeah, there is something so like wishy-washy in the last sentence or last, maybe it's the second last, whatever, the whole book where he says, and you know, like this is, I haven't tried to claim that this is the only explanation, this idealistic or what he calls the spiritual, spiritual explanation. Yeah. Um, and you know, like there could be a materialist explanation, but like both should admit they're just the beginning of a, an explan an inquiry <laughs> rather than actually explaining anything. And it's like, what? I mean, what, what do you... Like why, 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 what, what kind of theorizing is that? Well, it's like, also not clear like how one would develop this further, right? Like it's not as though this like gives us like anything like a clear research program to proceed with. Like, I, I don't know how you would, yeah. cause this is, this is the sort of, it's almost like a Gettier problem where like, I feel like there's something that he's right about when it mm -hmm. comes to like Protestant, like more ethic mentality and this worldliness and the calling yeah. and like how that does slot with like, you know, a capitalist ethos and like work culture. But like, I think he's like right for all these like weird wrong reasons that like, I don't know how he got there. And like the whole book feels like an attempt to get you to buy it. But like I said in the chat, like, or I, I actually tweeted this, like, I feel like he's right, but only if you squint. And if you actually start like looking at the details or try to figure out like, yeah, what is the nature of the claim here? It's not directly causative. And then it's all this like hedging. I'm just like, actually, I don't know how to even say that you're right or wrong. Like what, what are we doing? Well, cause here? he, he starts from like that stati these statistics, right? That, uh, oh, if you look at any European country and then the United States and that, you know, wherever Protestants, whatever part of the population is more Protestant or whatever country is like predominantly Protestant, like has like greater economic development, the, the, the skill, the level of skills of the workers is higher. And so he starts from this, I guess, supposed fact, right? And then says, <laughs> okay, well, how do, how do we explain this? He's like, well, let's dive into Calvinist theology. <laughs> well, it's it's also it just kind of like weird, right? It's very, it's very like folk soci sociological where he's just like, for sure. Well, well listen, like, look, I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but have you noticed that all of those like lazy Italians and Spaniards are Catholic? I, I was going to say, it's like Jesus, I, I, yeah, I, Jesus, <laughs> Max. I was, was going to say, if he were around now, like he totally has the vibe of like the, the type of guy that's like, oh man, look at these Greeks, like some German guy, like, you know, look at these Greeks, like they just need to work, uh, you know, work a little harder and the Italians and Portuguese and like these guys need to work. Uh, it's not in their culture though, so they can't, so you know, we have to support them. Funny and how consistent these things stay over time. So I, I suppose, so here's what, so here's what I think could be, it can be said for this a little more gen generously. There is an interest, like what he's pointing out to me is, as best I can understand is resonance. So like he does at, at first, when I when I read this the first time, I didn't pay attention to the kind of like geographical locations as much. I think he's probably wrong about Germany. Like I I don't know because I think the transition to capitalism in Germany is actually like understudied compared to like in England or the Netherlands or France. But like, a hundred, it might That's be. Definitely true. I I it seems I I think he's probably actually just wrong about Germany. I think Catholic Germany might have industrialized much more quickly, but. Having said that, mm. like, there is this strong residence with, like, the Netherlands and with England, but that's all I can say for it. Like, there is, there's, there's ideological resonance. I think the thing that I don't find convincing is that it's so focused on middle class people and on, like, capitalists themselves. And yeah. when he, at the end yes. of the book, he, nice. like, makes, or not the end, but the end of the sections that we read he makes this gesture towards whether or not this kind of these set of claims can be 
describe the the views or the behavior of working class people also. And he seems to kind of admit that <laughs> like like he only spends two paragraphs on this because like it's all about middle class businessmen. It's all about entrepreneurs. It's all about merchants. It's all about the proclivity to save, which mm -hmm. is like, mm -hmm. so you have this ascetic method of life that defers gratification and creates this kind of justification for the rationalization of life and of work. And this in, encourages you to save and then presumably to, to reinvest. But like, that's a very odd set of claims if the precondition for that is a set of social relationships in which workers are compelled to like work for you. And if that's not true, yeah. Yeah. then there's no money accumulation that's going to make capital appear. And and I think so. I think there's this like way in which he's sort of no matter how much worldly aestheticism you have. Yeah. yeah. So like I think that there's this basic misunderstanding, and I guess this is the deep running political Marxism in me is that like there is this way that people talk about capital accumulation, like it's just wealth, and like. It's not just wealth. Like feudal lords were not not capitalists because they were not lacking in wealth. That's not what was going on. And so accumulation right. in itself doesn't just turn <laughs> in to, to capital. So he seems to think that like saving and like self-denial is like what generates capitalist development. But I just think that can't can't be true because it's not like there weren't enough rich people to go around at the time. So I don't know. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I think the, okay. So I think that's right. And I think that the thing that he takes himself to be trying to explain, I think this is the puzzle that he thinks he's identified, right? He's like, okay, yeah. Like people have long been industrious. Obviously businesses have been around forever, but there feels it seems like there's something different going on here in in modern capitalism mm -hmm. and the thing that that is is like the drive for accumulation and his claim is that that wouldn't have like however that shift happens right where mm -hmm. we move from just being cuz this is what he describes as like the traditionalist sort of spirit or the traditionalist attitude right like yeah, maybe, you, maybe you'll implement a division of labor to increase the productivity of your work, but then you just work less. Or like maybe we improve like the technical conditions of production so that you can have more free time. And that's different than being like, and we're going to use that to wring out as much like value as possible and accumulate it. And, and reinvest like, and, and keep, reinvest doing, it again. And keep yeah. doing that again at a, on an always yeah. expanding scale. And he's like, maybe it's true that there's like a material dynamic that pushes that, but why do people think they have to do that? What, what psychologically is going on that like made that a thing? And so this is why I think he turns to ideas. Like I'm with you, Lillian. Like I, th I find this like not ultimately convincing, but I, I think the argument that he's trying to make is like, unless there was some like socio-psychological shift in advance of the like birth of capitalism, it seems impossible to explain why all of the sudden there's this like accumulation drive that's like becoming this social dynamic that becomes dominant in Europe. Like I'll say like the where where I the, to the extent that I find any of it right, it is purely on a kind of correlation basis. Vibes. Like this like residence, like you use the res yeah, like a vibes basis. Like I I grew up in Toronto. The vibe in Toronto with its like Orangeman history, uh versus Montreal, very Catholic city, the vibes are very different. And I <laughs> don't, like, but what the mistake is, is the mistake he makes is when he like 
I don't know. When he, again, he's, yeah, I, th- I like the way you put it because I thought I was confused, but I think he's just actually kind of stupid then because he <laughs> wants to like make a claim that's stronger than correlation. Yes. But then backpedal and say, I'm not making any causal claims. But like the correlation point, I think like, there's got to be something to it. I felt it for a long time in my life. Like, you know, the, I mean, even in places I've lived, I live in Boston now in Massachusetts, this place, you can like the puritanical legacy, the legacy of the Puritans, Massachusetts, which Weber gives as a example over and over again, as like one of the purest places where this new Protestant ethos like managed to take hold. I mean, the vibes are fucked here. (laughs) Okay. Like compared to, compared to Chicago, it is the vibes are fucked by that. I mean, like it is like it's it's very work oriented. There's a general hostility towards the enjoyment of life, you know, like bars close at either midnight or one. Like even even the people with money, like they all drive, like they have millions of dollars clearly from the real estate that they're living in, but they all drive Subarus and Volvos and stuff, and like don't try to be ostentatious because, as Weber describes, right, the part of the Protestant ethos is rejecting the enjoyment of wealth. You are supposed to rejoice in its accumulation. But you have to be always on guard against, you know, enjoying it. Yeah, that's you can see that here. And in Toronto, where I grew up, would have been just the same, I think, if there hadn't been waves and waves of immigration in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where finally, like, lots of Italians and Portuguese and West Indians and Indians and stuff came over. Yeah, save the city. So again, that was a bit long-winded, but just on a vibes, but on a vibes level, on a correlation level, there is something to it. This is like yeah, the thing that I guess the other way to put like the the weird puzzle is like the capital accumulation drive gets something so fucking backwards about what the even the purpose of social organization is, right? We're like going all the way back to like Aristotle. We know that money is just a means and it is a means to what? Whatever it is that you can buy with it and use. So everything is like oriented towards like use value, mm-hmm. right? And then all of a sudden starting in like, yeah, like the 16th century, 17th century, we get like an entire world destroying form of social organization that says actually pure means as an end in itself is the thing. Fuck utility, mm-hmm. fuck use value. And it's like, yeah. how did that happen? That is bananas. And not only was it like not the way that people understood what money was and what its deal was forever. A lot of times they understood that to be like fucking morally depraved and evil. Like, you know, like the accumulation drive mm-hmm. was like understood as like, yeah, in the Christian tradition. That's like debased. Debased and, and yeah. sinful and debaucherous and disgusting. And now all of a sudden, like all of the paragons of virtue are these like acute, like ruthless accumulators. Like something did totally shift here. It's just weird to be like, and also probably it's because Calvin was a more consistent theologian than Aquinas or something. It's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave, leave Thomas alone. I feel like he, he, uh, <laughs> he was very, a very highly systematic guy, in my opinion. He sure was. He wrote a lot. Yeah. We don't even know how systematic. That's how much he wrote. So I think that like something that you could say in this text's favor is that the kind of the resonance thing is suggestive of some kind of causal connection. I think it's just not the kind of causal mm-hmm. connection that people that at least I hear kind of advertised for this text. Like there, cause there's one way of describing what's going on here is that he's saying that Protestantism is like a precondition for capital accumulation, or you could say that it helped like more modestly, yeah. or you could say that like 
I mean, I'm not really sure. I think those are kind of the options. I think you could say, listen, it's not a precondition. Like it might have developed anyway, but like it helped. There's a there's a belief system that is kind of like organically yeah. emerging mm-hmm. in England, in the Netherlands, and Northern Europe, and in the U.S. And it was adaptable and like amenable to these like structural changes. And you see it kind of like a repeated yeah. pattern that it gets like deployed to a like a maximum rationalization of a competitive ideology and like adapting life to those constraints. I think that's possible to say. Mm -hmm. My question is always like, so what's the import of a claim like this now? Because given that capitalism is far from like only existing in those countries, it is like a global economic system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It it can subordinate many different cultures to its compulsions um, and many cultures adapt to it. And many people are are forced to do so. My question is like, what is the kind of efficacy or like what is useful about this? Like in terms of understanding capitalism now, Mm. you could say, okay, well, it's just deeper. Like one of the reasons Western countries are more productive is because they have this work ethic. I mean, like this is the kind of thing imperialists like say, but that doesn't sound (laughs) right. Yeah. Yeah, Like this isn't, that that doesn't sound (laughs) correct. And also at this point, like we're all fucking idiots in the global north anyway. Like we're like culturally depraved and <laughs> killing each other and everything. So I don't I don't know. And that's kind of like where I wonder about people's fascination with this text. Like at this point, what is compelling about talking about Protestantism like on that kind of scale? When you put it that way, it seems really difficult to understand what like what utility what explanatory use it has because yeah like you know there are plenty of places now where capitalism i mean plenty of places the vast majority of the globe where capitalism has firmly entrenched itself in different modes and different relationships in terms of like you know the periphery or center of empire but like there are people that have been pulled into even the form of life that capitalism demands in order for it to function and Protestantism has nothing to do with any of those places. So what would the, th- the theory be that what capitalism actually exports Protestantism along with it? Like the Protestant ethos is something it brings where it goes or something. That doesn't seem very that doesn't bizarre seem to right me. Either. Either. Yeah. No, that doesn't seem right either. So I don't, are there like Lillian, are there like, you would know this, I think better than any of us. Like, are there neo Weberians? Like, are, do people really look to this for yes, explanations of the world? All of contemporary or? sociology, as far as, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> they are all neo Weberians. Like, I think, <laughs> I think this is like, <laughs> so I, I, I get, I get I'm kind of like the one who knows the sociological literature a little, a little bit, just because I like in doing the capitalism stuff, I, you know, I've like made a little bit of an effort um, mm-hmm. and that, and that, and like the, the zone of social theory. And like, I saw a paper when I was searching for like neo Weberian class theories and it was called, if not Marx dot, 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 then Weber question mark. And like an old friend of mine, I remember like comment, like <laughs> sent me a message and was just like, isn't this the past 50 years of sociology? Like Marxism was discredited. And so now we're all, we're all Weberians now. Like, why do we need this paper? <laughs> and, but I think the title was really capturing to me because I, I think it, it does kind of represent a very significant 
trend in historical and economic, like economic sociology, where if you find Marxism implausible, but you don't want to be <laughs> like just a, a lib lib, you just do Weber. And because he's supposed to have the com the complexity so and, and the nuance. So yeah, I, I think there are neo Weberians everywhere. I think they're crawling at the universities. Here's why I just I don't the idea that there that that's an alternative is just so bizarre to me because Marxism and Weberian thinking or whatever are completely different. Materialism in Marx is not like a theory of matter or a theory of just the agency of material. It's an account, among other things, of the relationship between the material and the ideal. Yeah. It's an account of the re of the relationship between the material and the things that are ostensibly immaterial. Culture, different social forms, religion, ideas, philosophy, um, and it embeds your analysis of those ostensibly non-material things in a larger materialist analysis of history that involves an understanding of economics. And so, but what Weber's doing is not an account of the relationship between like the ideal and the material. It's just an account of the ideal. You know what I mean? Like it isn't a competitor because it doesn't purport to explain anything about the relationship. He admits that there is a relationship probably there between, must, you know, be some kind of between Protestantism and capitalism, but he doesn't, like he he, is, he says, I'm not going to flesh that out, and you know maybe maybe it doesn't even need to be fleshed out. Uh, so I, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. That's not a it's not an alternative because it, it isn't a theory of all how those things all hang together. It's just an ideal an idealist theory. Well, it's, yeah, it's just an examination of ideas. I guess like if we so there's a couple of different things. One is like I I, I really like that question, Lillian, that you asked before. Like, what is the utility of this? for yeah. us here now, right? Like what's the upshot for us? And I was also having this conversation with someone the other day because because he's not making like a really strong causal claim and is refusing to do so. Like I could imagine a, a possible world, let's do a little counterfactual of our own, where like instead it turned out that in the 1600s, capitalism first breaks out, not in England, but in like the Indian subcontinent. And then would he have written a book called like, I don't know, Hindi ethic and the spirit of capitalism? Like, could you reverse engineer <laughs> a similar sort of just so story using the developments of whatever religion in another part of the world to say like, oh, that must be why, because I'm refusing the materialist explanation, it must have been this like cultural religious formation wherever that happened to have contingently been. And I'm not saying that that's a causal claim, right? It's very like hedgy and sort of unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I was like, Thinking Does he ever talk about Japan? I was just going to say that you could definitely, right? so. like the only other place outside of Europe where like you could do something similar that wasn't, you know, just as a result of like colonial pressure would be like Japan. Like because capitalism Japan, yeah. mm -hmm. developed there like without. And like a work ethos. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know because I know very little about that context, but you could you could give it a shot and see if like there's some something similar, but. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. They're not yeah, Protestants. So. This is why like I'm I'm sort of coming around, Lillian, to your like overt hostility because like the regard that this text like is held in is it does damage to the social sciences because it begins by being like historical materialism is bad and ought to be left behind, right? And then by that, he just literally does mean like, could you imagine being a historical materialist? You know, the kind of people who think that ideas don't ever do anything, you know, these people who are just <laughs> yeah, strict economic reduction. It's like, what? No one thinks that, <laughs> God damn you. And now like generations of social theorists are like, well, I read Weber and like, now I know that Marxism isn't worth even considering at all. 
Oh, by the way, Will has joined us. Will, hi. Hi, Will. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Sorry. I was having massive technical issues. Won't bore you with the details, but it sounds like you've been holding it down. We are we've been all right. We're not we're not too happy with Vapor. I'm getting we're not from so the, thrilled about the Vapor. Last right I jumped in. Yeah. Hey, we started off, you know, we're trying to point out the good, trying to point out the good, but yeah, Lillian brought us in a different direction pretty quick, and I think she's right. I tanked it. We tanked charity. <laughs> you, you weren't gonna you weren't gonna let them get away with it, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Let let me you know, catch up with where you all are at, so I can see you know where I'm going to be dunking and all that. But you know, just from what Gil has said, you know, if part of the legacy of Weberianism is this you know, misconception that to be a historical materialist means you know nothing to do with culture, nothing to do with ideas, it is just you know, pure cold economic processes, then that strikes me as you. Know, not great and you know I, I was just you know I'm teaching Vanessa Wills is you know uh, what does it mean to say that capitalism causes racism and sexism tomorrow in my class and mm. you know she's really clear it's just so you know, it's very strange to think that you know ideas don't take on the form in particular social context what we're looking yeah. for is actually you know the causal mechanisms of how these all work together and from what I, yes. I glean from the Weber that we were reading is he really thinks that the incisive of, you know, insight that he has is, you know, I found this thing called Protestantism, and I bet <laughs> you materialists haven't realized that there are certain cultural codes of conduct that go along with this, though he at times seems to want to say, like, I'm not saying it caused mo modern capitalism, I'm yes, just saying, yes. you know, so there is this interesting relationship, there's Protestantism, <laughs> there's capitalism, if you put them together... Isn't there kind of a similarity? I'm just, I'm just I'm asking like, questions. I'm just <laughs> asking questions. Is, so that's the best you got? That was the bullet you had in the chamber? You're basically saying, like, don't hold me to this. I'm just saying that this could also be an explanation. Well, yeah. This is so funny, Will. When you go back and listen to the episode, you will hear that the first half hour, we said every one of those things that you just said. Oh, like, good. We're, so we're I on the same page independently. No, that's good, though. It would have been really funny if I jumped in and I said the exact opposite of everything. Thing that you all said, just like, yeah, so this guy, yeah, that would have been good too. We could read say, him well, instead please, of Mark. Shake us up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, um, sorry. So here's the thing that I, th I think is like really attractive about Weber. So I mentioned that what bothers me is the kind of obsession with the middle class and the lack of systematicity and like the ambivalence of causal claims. I think that like together, yeah. these two problems have like really fucked up our ability to like think in the humanities and social sciences. So on the one hand, there is now an obsession with like not like we can't have meta narratives as we all know, definitely not can't do that. Um, so there's this like real emphasis on like description and cataloging and like mid range theories that are like never yeah. beyond the scope of like what they say that they can immediately achieve. We're all always hedging. So like the lack of yeah. ambition to like have a general social theory, a theory of history with a, like even a lowercase h, like the kinds of things that like Durkheim and Marx for whatever their relative like weaknesses and strengths are like, you know, I, like I'm not like a, a big endorser of Durkheim, but like this dude was trying to like work it out, you know, and like that, that it's cool to read. And, and likewise with Marx, like whatever doesn't mm -hmm. work, you're just like, this is, it's an ambitious like research program that is like 
generative, you know? Right. Whereas like, I feel like with vapor, it's like, it's like degenerative. Like you just kind of decompose into a set of ambivalences. <laughs> and then the emph- this is the last thing, like the emphasis on the middle class is like really distorting because we be, it's really narcissistic. Like we get, we're like really into what people like us and all of our great diversity think. And it's really in contrast to like, for example, like the new social history that was being done in the sixties or whatever, like that was more like history from below stuff. And like that still exists, but like the Weberian imposition on social science and history seems to be that like, we just never want to go beyond what we can state in a paper and then whatever we state happens to be more or less what we can say with confidence in our intuitions about people like us because we don't want to overreach or whatever. So then we all end up focusing on Mm -hmm. the life worlds of middle-class people. I I don't know if that's fair, (laughs) but it does strike me as like- Which are very boring. So bleak. That sounds like a problem to me. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I, I've really resonated with what, what you were saying and, you know, doing all the provisos that I'm not a Weber scholar. So if, you know, Weberians are about to jump all over me, like they jumped all Whatever. over us take, with the rent. Take your shot, Weberians. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'm, you know what, I'm going to like take Lillian's advice and I'm going to try to like say something ambitious. But, you know, what I got from <laughs> it is, you know, uh, somebody who didn't think that they actually could fully explain how modern capitalism comes about. And they were simply reaching for a type of explanation that perhaps we could find plausible. And I guess, you know, you can say that's really great in the sort of name of a type of epistemic humility. But, you know, when that is take that epistemic humility is taken up as there is no reason to be ambitious and to, you know, right. actually look at how, you know, these explanations can be brought together. So sure, you can talk about culture, but we can also talk about material dynamics in conjunction. I think, yeah, you know, social thought and social theory loses something in that impasse. And so I, I sometimes find myself frustrated with, you know, the constant hedging of the bets. And sometimes I feel like I'm talking to a bunch of people who are hall monitors for the possible, and, you know, always wagging their <laughs> fingers, slow down. Don't try to say too much. No, no, no. And I'm just like, you know, like, how do you, how do you know? And don't you, don't you want to see what's beyond that limit? But, you know, I, I guess it's a, it's important to keep us in check, you know, and by keep us in check, I guess it means navel gaze at ourselves rather than <laughs> reach beyond our own particular and, social And write papers that start with towards. Oh, God. Yeah. Look, I'm, oh, look, 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 my book has a towards yeah, it in it, does. but guess it what? Does. Guess I've what? done it too. Guess what? Guess what? I've done it too. Guess what? We actually get to the critical theory of utopia. There ain't no okay. hand waving, oh, yeah. okay. being like, here are notes towards a possible prolegal no, no, no. We're yeah, doing the, the damn thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I guess to be generous again to Weber a little bit, if we can, is that remember like is I some... jumped in halfway, so I'm I'm in the dunk train right now. <laughs> yeah, no, we're gonna listen. I'm sure that what I'm about to say is not gonna stop the dunks from happening, so I'm not worried about it. But um, I guess to be generous, like there's something maybe that could be said for like you know disregarding what I think off four of us find most unsatisfying about the book, which is that it purports to give some kind of historical account of like something like the conditions for causes of the origin of capitalism. And then just does not do that at all. Like just absolutely refuses to make the causal claim and like kind of 
seems to suggest that you couldn't make such a causal claim. So that's unsatisfying. But there might be something valuable in the approach to reading religion as a social phenomena, right? Like, because he like says things about her, like methodologically there that I think are fascinating, where he's like, yes, we got to look at the doctrines because it would be a mistake to think that the best way to understand the, the living practice of Protestantism is just going to be found in those parts of the doctrine that say, like, here's how you should live. He's like, no, no, no. The theological claims themselves end up having like existential practical import and should be thought of in these terms. Right. So like he's obviously not at all interested in being like, was, was John Calvin correct about whether God wants you to like pursue tirelessly the vocation of your calling? He's like, that's not what's interesting. What's interesting is how that might have ramifications or repercussions for how people then go about their lives. If they accept this, apparently just theological proposition. Yeah. So it, so it might not be, maybe this is one way of putting it then, it might not be a good like history history, but it is, I do think there is merit in it as an ethical history, like a history of how a different, how an ethos evolves, how, an ethos how evolves. An, a certain, a modern like ethos develops out of a series of phenomena over the span of like 400 years. Uh, and on that front, just as like as and, and again, as you put it, as I like what you said, Gil, that uh, you know, it's not just the ethical. Uh, what are, what's the word? Uh, like precepta. The ethical principles or right. the ethical. Yeah, it's it's not just the moral part of it of religion that's important. It is all these other parts of the theology that one has to take seriously if you're going to understand how this ethos evolved. The the cowardly part. I mean, I, I, I think I would replace <laughs> their lack. That's a coward. No, I, I think I would replace the lack of ambition thing that you identified, Lillian, with like at least in many cases intellectual cowardice. Right, like the 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 cowardly part of what is involved there is that like he wants to have his cake and eat it too, and so he wants to play footsie with an with the the explanatory power beyond just mm-hmm. an ethical history, like a history of the way an ethos evolves, and and yet he doesn't, but he doesn't want to be responsible for what claiming that connection actually entails, right? So that's why, yeah, I think there's an element of cowardice there, not just like the lack of ambition, you know? So from what you and Gil are saying, and I I, I got this too, and I don't know if you all have talked about the whole ideal type thing that he claims to be doing. Oh, actually we have not, no. You know, so it would seem as if what he is doing is, you know, he is not saying like, you know, I'm giving you the complete lived existential reality of being a Calvinist, of being, you know, a Protestant, etc. Instead, he is trying to offer a hypothesis of how we might think these discourses, modes of conduct, you know, we could say organization of, you know, a type of life translates into another sphere of life, which is, you know, the economic or the political sphere. And so it seems like what he is saying is, you know, we look at these doctrines and you're right, we don't just look at the ethical part, but we look at the whole shape of life that these, you know, doctrines provide and we see a possible explanation of how people might have translated that theology, that whole shape of theological life and made those into political, social principles of how they conduct Mm -hmm. themselves, how they approach categories of work, of wealth, of whether, you know, it's going to be based on your own doing or whether you will simply be saved or not. And so perhaps it's about the, you know, presenting a possible picture of how people translate ideas from one realm of life, the religious form of life, into Mm -hmm. their practical activities or their practical conduct in another form of life, say, you know, 
when they enter the economic sphere um, or the political spheres. It, does that sound like along the, the lines of what, yeah. what you were talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's like a theological political tradition, right? Like political theology, this is, I don't, it's insofar as it is anything like a discipline, this is, I think, part of what it tries to do, right? It's, you know, Schmidt, insofar as he's a political theologist, you know, he was obsessed with the, not obsessed with, but he, he pointed out the um, the relationship between deism, the notion that like God just like, creates the world at the beginning and then lets it unfold according to a bunch of principles that were there at the beginning with like constitutional forms of government where you just create the constitution and then you like back off and let it just like, like mechanically unfold according to the principles it began with. And I think there is something... There can be something illuminating about that kind of political theology. And as you put it, Will, like that connection between theology and other far parts of our practical life or like forms of life. Um, yeah. I guess it's, it's, yeah, it's, I guess it's the stated ambition that's bugging me. I don't, I don't know what the sticking Wait, point is there. But, but yeah. you know, just to be clear, but what's weird is, and you know, the reason why I brought the ideal type thing is, oh, yeah, you sorry, know, he doesn't, type, yeah. It's not even like yo. Know, he thinks he has the goods to say that this actually is how it works. It, I'm what. So what is Weber trying to do? Because sometimes I think <laughs> is he just trying to say, you know, here's how we can have an orderly conceptual schema, and maybe that conceptual schema is actually right. But for us, the intellectual, this is how we can have some clear, distinct ideas. So ideal types are great because it allows us to condense the immense complexity of the world and have some clean sort of concepts and divisions and see if we can you know, create our own sort of mind palace of how the world works, even if we don't actually have the empirical evidence to say that that's actually how it goes. So you know, what I find strange here is, is this for the theorists? And this kind of goes back to Lillian's question about getting trapped in looking at navel-gazing at the middle class. Is this about the theorists' self-intelligibility, their own clarity? Oh my gosh, or is this really is. about offering an actual practical explanation of how the, the complex processes of the world unfold. My thinking from reading what, what you assigned to us, Gil, is that he's more interested in the former, in you know, the, the how the theorists can become clear to themselves on a possible picture of the world. And that seems to be the practical activity rather than you know, risking, or as uh, Owen put it, letting go of the intellectual cowardice of entering into the world as it is. So I, I, is that what the ideal types are doing? Because, you know, he, he's like clear. He knows there are shortcomings. He knows that this isn't actual. But then I'm thinking, so who is this supposed to be reflecting for? And I get the sense it's for Weber and <laughs> the practice of sociology. So, like, just to be very mean, like, I feel sometimes about this that, like, I've, I see myself in this a little bit where it's like, what's the purpose of this writing that, I, that I've done? And it's like... Well, because I read some shit and had to say something about it, like it couldn't have been a waste of time, right? And so like he read all of this like early Protestant theology and was like, oh, I got to make hay out of this somehow. A lot of it. <laughs> I read a lot yeah. of it. I'm like, all right, let's yeah. he is well put read. it in order. He's very well read, extremely. Uh, but like as an account, it's unconvincing. And I'm not sure that then it's doing much more than being like, well, it turns out that, yeah, it's like, a, you know, bourgeois German Protestant myself, like had to kind of get a grip on what I was all about. And now we've got a pretty cool book that all, oh, by the way, says that don't be a Marxist while we're at it. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised <laughs> by that conclusion myself, but weird. Here it so is. strange. Yeah. I mean, is it meant to be a convincing account? Well, this is the thing. I don't know. And Lillian asked this question before, which is like, okay, even if I grant, were we to grant it, right? Assuming I want, I want to make two points here. Assuming that like, okay, fine. Protestant, 
Protestantism created the conditions psychologically for the possibility of the origin of capital. Fine. Okay. What now? What, what about, what do we do with that? What does this mean for us here? Does this illuminate anything about what we ought to be doing or is there a, is there any kind of practical or theoretical upshot for us now that we've accepted this thesis? And I'm just not sure that there is. The other thing that I wanted to say is now that I've, I've said, let's accept the hypothesis. The other thing that I wanted to like point out is that like, as an attempted causal explanation at all, even a super hedged one, right? Even a really modest, restrictive one, it still has a moment that is unintelligible. Namely, like, okay, fine. We're going to say that like it was the order of operations was Protestantism first, then capitalism. But like, why the fuck did Protestantism happen? Why did, why did the Reformation <laughs> even take place? It Was it sui generis? Did it just like for no reason? Yeah. Like Luther just... Luther just thought some shit different than the guys who came before him. Like what, what kind of, he, what kind of account is chose this? Violence go. He woke up and chose violence. Is that the historical story that we're given? He posted. <laughs> you are original poster. Yeah. The King poster. I do think that what's interesting to me is that, I, so to kind of refer back to the way people like, like Weber so much more than they like Marx. He's actually like a pretty conservative guy. And, I guess the reason this is relevant to me, I mean, like in the actual history of German politics, he was always like in a kind of conservative it's liberal the party. Redux. He was ne never, yeah, he was yes. never, he was never on the left. And so, first of all, it's just odd to kind of make him into the substitute Marx after the end of the kind of legitimacy of Orthodox Marxism. I feel like the kind of repercussions for that are like obvious. But there's also like. His reading of this, like that kind of question of like, why did Protestantism emerge? I don't know how to answer that question if it's not a materialist explanation. Right. And ironically, like Catholic apologists who are like conservative, like they're the ones who give the competing like materialist explana explanation. Because if you need to like mm -hmm. con condemn something, suddenly the fact that they're doing it for the money is like a really attractive way to be like, yeah, this was illegitimate. Um, so you get... And I, and I and frankly I think it's probably right although not yeah. to be a a, a pre-Vatican II Catholic apologist but it's like the kind of explanations that like GK Chesterton gives for example and like uh what is that book called on western civilization I don't know but it's about like a, the the reformation being a matter of like taking the church's property away and the kind of devolution of political mm -hmm. power and so on and so forth like like Luther's theology was just a moment in time that suited a political current. And however conservative that narrative, like something like that probably is correct. And so there's a way in, in which the, the idealist narrative tend, I think this is my problem with all of these kinds of narratives. It's not that it's not interesting. Like there's resonance, there's compatibility. I think there's no doubt that like middle-class people rationalize their behavior in this way for probably a really long time. I don't actually have so much of a problem with that. Mm. It's the question begging nature of it. It's like you can't actually push the causal explanation backward on its own terms. And I think this is true for all idealism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also wonder those of us who find Weber possibly interesting, but ultimately don't agree. You, you know, Weber, at least in what we've read, doesn't seem to give us so what's, you know, what's the so what, you know, whether, whether we're doing is, is Weber actually like 
kind of chill with modern capitalism? You know, does he think that, you know, there's something wrong going on here? But, you know, I did find myself reading and, and resonating with, you know, when he's talking about the emergence, the notion of the vocation of, you know, the calling when it comes to, to work. And yeah, to, to be honest, like, yeah, you do sometimes hear a lot of people, middle-class people, self-describe the work that they do under this notion of, you know, I'm called to do it. You know, yeah, so sure, the hours might suck and, you know, I become more of a miserable person when I go home, but this is all about, you know, the calling. And I'm wondering if those of us who are on the left, you know, something we could look at here is like, maybe we should critique this notion of a calling or you know, at least you know, ask how is this language of a calling serving to demystify social relations of you know, exploitation or the idea that it's possible for work to have that type of meaningfulness? Because I found myself looking at that and I'm thinking, what would it mean to like challenge and leave behind this language of work as a calling where you're expected to give 110% because mm -hmm. of course it cannot simply be about the wage. It is about, you know, no, you know, the spiritual connection you have to it. And so when I read that, I think all of a sudden Weber is giving me interesting resources of thinking at least about how forms of communication description our people like us all in the quotation marks describe our relationship to work and how that can constrain our horizons of expectations you know the idea that work should be a calling and you know the 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 misery that enters in from either finding your calling or not being able to find your calling so uh, yeah i'm just wondering how we also start to interact with weber if we don't accept his explanation but we see as william was saying that there's some interesting things here some some harmony, some things that you yeah. know, maybe is getting right. And so what would our relationship to be to that type of language? Yeah, like in, I think I like that. So insofar as, you know, ideology critique like tends to tends to mm -hmm. um, deploy a concept of legitimation as an important concept, right? That it's got to be possible. And this is one of the things Weber does this elsewhere with um, with uh, his account of like politics and um, obedience to the law, but one of the his question he's very concerned with the question of legitimacy, right? Which is how do you turn coercion into duty, right? Like how do you both as a let's say as a citizen, like how do you how do you make a polity in which like the citizenry don't just obey because they're afraid of punishment, but actually obey out of some inner felt some yeah. felt like um, loyalty to or some maybe loyalty is not the right word, but some fidelity to the to the law and some fidelity to the state or something. Cultivate civic virtue. Exactly, civic virtue. There's a similar thing here that he's trying to do on the economic front, I think, which is to say, like, how is it that it became the case that people were not just working because they're like, you know, working at gunpoint or sword point or something or or even just because of material necessity, right? At the, at, like with hunger facing you, but how it's possible that what the story of the legitimation of that um, that form of life that capital demands capitalism demands, which is like a dedication to work for its own sake, the ability mm -hmm. to find value in working mm -hmm. and not just doing it for as long as like until you get what you can eat, you know, but, yeah. and then stopping. And I think, yeah, so that, that the attempt to explain how co coercion turns into duty, I think it, it has some value there, right? But again, that's, it's restricted from within that ideal, that ideal domain, right? Like in order to tell the full story of legitimation, you have to go out of the ideal and explain what's being legitimated. Like what are the material forces that are enabling that legitimation? You need a theory of like media and yeah. I, I don't know. Well, so, also like, you know, to Lillian's point again, like that story 
interesting though it might be, applies only for an extremely small set of middle class people exactly. in a particular part of the yeah. world. Whereas the, the vast the majority, coming back to yeah. the vast majority of human beings on the planet who are laboring under conditions of capitalism aren't driven by an inner felt sense of like duty for work for for its own sake, but it's because they're fucking yeah. poor and starving, and like that's the yeah. only option available to them. So this is again like a peculiarly neurotic self obsession to like make as like your like the cornerstone of your like sociological theory. I would say. So I think that like the reason I keep saying the thing about like the preoccupation with like middle-class people and he says it explicitly like the 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 bürgerlicht like or, yeah. or whatever like mm-hmm. they're the reason i keep pointing this out is because these are the makers of discourse so like when you talk about like i think it's useful as a discourse analysis and when you talk about discourse yeah. analysis what you are talking about is fundamentally the top 20 percent of the population that are engaging in discourse like that's that's mm-hmm. who <laughs> is the sub even if you're like a Foucauldian who's like there is no subject here. Like, it is it is a function of what those kinds of subjects are, are thinking and, and doing, um, and how like their ideas about what they are doing congeal. And that's actually, in a way, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you were to admit that that's what you're talking about, right, because totally. that creates some contribution to the production of ideology and the kind of like normative and cultural resources that become available for people to start articulate to articulate their own claims about justice or like how things should be. So like like I, I agree that there's quite a bit of value in doing that. And I think it does seem to be the case that Protestantism created a kind of nexus of legitimation for a set of practices that may not have been accepted by the rest of the population, but they're the people who went to, you know, set up Harvard and Yale and <laughs> now mm-hmm. you know. Now we we listen to them. So they're <laughs> and, <laughs> and we still they're do. often our managers too. Yeah. As you were talking, and I, I was hesitant to bring bring this up, but yeah, then you know, Gil said what he said. It's like, oh, then I can say this. Well, in my life, I've worked at you know Coles, I've worked at Target, and I've worked at the Cheesecake Factory, and in all three of those experiences, the big three. This is, the big, the big three. And you know, <laughs> if you always hear me ragging on managerism or managerialism, it really is driven by that experience where I had, you have all of these managers who keep saying, you know, here, we're not merely coworkers, we're family. Not. And we're I remember seeing family. some joke on Twitter where someone's like, as soon as you, whenever you go to a job, they say you're family, it's about to be the worst working experience <laughs> you've ever had. You're Definitely. about to have a bad always. time. Every time, every time. And, and you know, the way that they would try to drive us to work harder is you know, like you know, don't you want to take pride in your work when the manager wasn't around and i would talk to these people some of them you know who had you know kids at home you know running to their second shift and all of that i never heard them say anything about this being a calling you know i i almost think that 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 experience that they had would be unintelligible Nice. In this ideal type framework. And so not only is it about you know, being able to critique you know, who generates the discourse and ideology of legitimation, but also allows to, you know, to be able to critique what experiences, what social realities are fundamentally fall out of this explanation. And yeah. you know, I don't think it's a mistake mm-hmm. that almost mm-hmm. all the managers ever had, you know, they've never been like, look, 
I'm paying you to do this. Like, yo, do what you, you know, just do what you need to get that paycheck. It was always something <laughs> yeah. extra, some guilt. Like, don't, don't you want to like see yourself in this work? Like, bruh, I'm making an espresso. I see nothing of myself in this. All yeah. I see is getting <laughs> off the clock. That's all I see. That's my calling, my bed. And so I actually even find this like important to see how this has been like diffused into institutions of managing labor radicalism and also, mm-hmm. you know, a way of distorting the experience of what it's like doing work that, you know, and I didn't even have the worst of it, but it sucks. It absolutely sucks. It's sweaty. It's backbreaking. It's not good pay. Are you kidding me? No, you go into Target. No one on that floor thinks that this is a calling. This is a job yeah. that they have to do. And so to think that that is like an adequate explanation will boggle my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're all like too cynical for that now too. It's like, like, yeah, like I feel like is. it's something that's like deployed by management and by like people who, and also like the management of universities, like the, the, the deans will like say stuff like this, but like. I think that a lot of, because like the culture is increasingly secularized, like people use this language of hard work and they talk about a vocation. I I think especially academics do this, but like, in fact, most people are too cynical. Like imagine talking to like a hedge fund manager and being like, do you feel like this is a calling? Like, no, they're getting paid. No, just make fuckloads of money. You know, so I'm rich, bro. Like my bank account is calling. What? (laughs) <laughs> and also like yeah. the other side of it too that I was thinking about like cuz I I mentioned this in my intro and like you know there the thing is is like the the level of descriptive analysis in Weber is so general that like you can agree with any of it if you feel like but also you could just as often go literally the other way and make an alternate, like an, the opposite mm-hmm. general claim and have it just be as, as plausible. So for instance, like I mentioned at the start that like, you know, oh yeah, like he's talking about like ascetic discipline and like, you know, the, the valuing the work in and for itself and not for like having a hedonist lifestyle. And like, yeah, Sam Bankman freed running FTX. Like he was, a, he was wearing like just a shitty t-shirt <laughs> and like yeah. bike shorts New, ba- new balance shoes. But that's one of the billionaires that we've got. And some of the rest of them live extremely ostentatious hedonistic lifestyles. So, like, what's the theory got to say about that? Like, it's not as though every wealthy person doesn't spend a lot of money on themselves. So why are we only selecting only a couple of these social phenomena to treat as salient? And it's because ideal types, bro. Like, ideal types. Do you bro. do you want a clean theory or not? Okay. I kind of, I kind of do. All right, I'm on board. Can Can we like take a, a moment to like I I before we we reach our conclusion? Can we just like talk about like how bleak like this Protestantism stuff is? Oh. Like, the, <laughs> yes. Like it's really. This is what I was saying. Spoke I feel to like, me. I feel like. Yeah, yeah let's go. I feel like I also one thing I did get a lot out of since the last time I I read it was like, <laughs> I, I just genuinely felt sad. I was like, this is really, really yeah, dark in here. It's so cool. Um, I love it. And a profound like way of like and let's just like let's like take for granted that like this ethos and capitalism mesh nicely together. Totally. Like he does provide like a pretty like clear picture of like a dark hole. A in very dark spiritual hole. culture. A thousand percent. Horrible. Yeah, the theology. Does he is, realize it's dark though? I, I from what I've heard. That's what like, I wonder. Part I, of I wanted to ask you guys does. about that. Yeah. Like yo, in his stuff on yo, um, the sort of uh, the rationalization of the world, the kind of like yo, yeah, I guess um, 
no miracles anymore. <laughs> well, we're in this we're in this steel casing, and yes, I use the proper German. I like Iron Cage better, but we're in this steel casing now. So, guess that's that. Yeah, there's a few points where he's kind of tongue in cheek, and he's like, "Yeah, you know this um, this worldview that sucks all the joy out of life," and you know what I mean, or like this. He'll say like, you know. <laughs> This, uh, this worldview, which, you know, is, he makes it sound dour at, at certain points. And I wonder, is like, is he aware of that? I mean, how much is he, other times <laughs> he seems to be in total admiration of how much capital like these people can accumulate. But yeah, so I don't know. What is, is he, does he vibe with the Protestant ethos or is he really, I don't know. I'm not sure, but like to? my, my, I guess my easiest kind of comparison is, you know, maybe we should do an episode on Francis Fukuyama at some point. He's back he's back on Twitter. Well, as in we're all talking about him on Twitter. But I think, you know, sometimes people miss like, you know, in his whole end of history thing, people are like, yeah, and he was just like, yes. But there are actually moments where he's just like, damn. Oof. Guess, um, guess we're at the end, huh? No more Oof. new politics. You know, the, the light of the world is kind of drained. That's um well. Nothing to do but manage and process, I guess. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of ambivalence of, wow, look at yeah. all of this. But like, mm. Well, there's like a moment to speak of like <laughs> yeah. the, the, like the, the bleakness of Protestantism as a theology. There's like a moment that I always find whenever I read this text, like deeply resonant for me. Like, and it's a moment where I think Weber's insight is based on his resonance with like the way that it, it resonates with him, which mm. is where he's like, okay, we've laid out the sort of the harsh realities of our very systematic rationalist theology, right? Some of us will be among God's elect and chosen. We will be given grace and the rest of us are going to be damned eternally. And there is fucking nothing you can do to get yourself some of that grace. If you don't got it, you ain't got it. And that is just the end. No repentance. No Either repent repentance doesn't no get That's work. such a cruel Christianity. It takes repentance away from you. It yeah. is sola fide, I thought that was the point. My guys. Yes, it is. Because, and by the way, like in the debates in early modern philosophical theology that are taking place here in the wake of like Luther, it's like, well, what else did you want to be the case? Did you want it to be true that like, because you did some shit, that God should change his mind? Are you insane? Okay, well, like, that's, like you that. don't get to... That's to, not a God you're talking about. That's that not point. a God. That yeah. would just be some guy. We're talking about the divine will and the divine understanding. <laughs> that, so That's an independent voter. No. That is an God independent voter. God is not voter. an independent voter. <laughs> you're not going to be like, but God, wait, uh, shouldn't you like save me? Didn't you see that I like gave the charity to some other like damned, miserable, lowly, finite creatures? Like whatever, who cares? There's nothing. And he's, and the moment of resonance where I always have in the, in, in, in the text is he's like, imagine how psychologically unendurable it would be to actually believe that. Like imagine how yeah. fucking impossible but it would be. To, but to it's live even there. more it's even more psychologically brutal than that because it'd be one thing if they said that you could be damned, you don't know, like nothing you can do about it if you are damned. You might be tempted to say, All right, like fuck it. I'm just gonna really like soak like suck the maximum out of life as I possibly can. I'm really just gonna love life and really enjoy life. And then the Calvinists or the Pro and a lot of sects of Protestantism will tell you, like, no, 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 you can't do that either. Because like even <laughs> if you are damned, you, you still have to even just this one life, you still have to live it for still God's have to glory. Suffer right? and don't you enjoy have to serve anything. God's so you should suffer, you should still just dedicate yourself to your job, even if it's terrible. Or if you don't have a job, you should just suffer and try to do <laughs> like try to find work. And then like, you know, don't do any leisure. Like, think about it. That's amazing. Leisure. No leisure. Like, Leisure's you're bad. condemned to hell. You're not allowed to do any leisure. 
sex is terrible and you can't enjoy food. I'm you know, getting, I, I just, I'm getting so really blackpilled right now. <laughs> like, I'm just holding up for no, dear life. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, though. I've been certain places where you can kind of tell that this, that this worldview had took hold. Like, but don't you think that, like, the crazy thing about this is that there a reason for that? Like, why you have to do what you just said, Owen, is that you don't want other people to think you're not one of the elect. Yeah. Like, you have to, <laughs> to start to... <laughs> So like, <laughs> oh my god! So I've got God on my back, so like, but you don't I also have to like, keep up with the Joneses anyone... too. Uh, I don't want my neighbors to yeah. know that I'm condemned to hell. So, so I need I'm to, just not going to enjoy so, life. So I need to not enjoy anything about my ex- finite existence. Ah, oh, brutal. <laughs> Wait, just like, last thing, last thing. But yeah. like, you know, this really tells me this is why you know, and, you know, in another life, you know, we talk about this more. This is my theory of why so many horror movies take place in the suburbs because oh, middle yeah. class life is actually horrible on the inside. Everyone's just like, "Hey, neighbor, <laughs> nice to see you." Inside, <laughs> the credit card debts piling up, the marriage is falling apart. They hate their kids, but when they go outside, like, neighbor. We did it. And like they're just like they're all terrified and sad, but Yeah. Your special occasion Sunday night is fucking chilies. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, it's bleak out there, man. Yeah. Oh, boy. oh man. So sometimes I'm like, Vapor, you were real for, for our that European one. audience. This is Chili's oh. baby back ribs are our uh That's really all we got. Them. That's what food. we got. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a Don't it's come a here. food people eat in the United States. <laughs> oh boy! Oh. So, don't worry. If global and a five dollar margarita. Yeah, yeah. But on Mondays, on Mondays they're two dollars. It's great stuff. Hey! If globalization has its own way, Europe, <laughs> you're going to be seeing it real soon. McDonald's was only the beginning. <laughs> That's right. And we are looking for sponsors. McDonald's, Chili's, hit us up. We love you. We're already <laughs> giving you free advertising. Well, I think that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Slay, Aiden Ziliak, Post-War Utopia, Chamomile, Ali Hassani, Ed Cook, Denise Shannon, Philip M., Malcolm, Michael Angelo Bunigong, Callan McGill, Ben Campbell, Jackie S., Jeremy Sawyer, Matt S., Erica Davis, Left Anchor, Peter St. Clair, Morton Hansen, and Matthew Gibson. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes, bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch on the store linked at our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. See you, everyone. Bye.